a good message about hope and good news and to urge people to trust in Christ for that, right? It's an awesome, awesome kind of thing. Enough about that. Let me pray and we'll, we'll start our study. Father, thank you for this morning and for the things that have been happening in the life of Omaha Bible Church this morning and beyond. Thank you for the way you orchestrate things in life according to your providence and how you've given us so many different kinds of relationships and how so many times they provide open doors for the good news of salvation in Jesus. And uh, we can delight in those opportunities. Uh, help us to be able to be... Um, ready and willing and able to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Uh, Help us to be good ambassadors and uh, to honor you in that way and to even to show love for our neighbor in that way. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our only hope. He is the great victor over the grave, and he is the one who is our righteousness by faith, and we're delighted in him. Now open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Guide us with your spirit even now. In Jesus' name, amen. As a rule, when people visit Omaha Bible Church as a custom, I almost without exception say to them, uh, what brings you here today? So many of you who are here today, um, that's how I first talked to you. When you first came, I probably said, what brings you here today? As we met and I've heard a lot of different answers. Uh, someone said, my car. I was reminded of that today. Um, that's usually, that's the most smout marth answer I've ever heard and got a chuckle out of that. Um, you might be interested to know a lot of people say God. And uh, it's a, a refreshing kind of answer. Uh, but typically it's, uh, I'm here today because um, we just moved here. We're visiting from out of town. Um, Sometimes it's the church where we've been going for years doesn't preach the gospel anymore. Uh, We want a church that does expository preaching. A lot of different kinds of answers. Uh, But I like hearing from people why why they're here. And usually then it leads to me saying something along the lines of, well, why Omaha Bible Church? Why did you choose to visit here? And I hear a lot of different kinds of answers. Helps me to know how to communicate helps me to know what to say next. My question for you right now is, what's Jesus looking for in a church? We look for different things in a church. What does Jesus look for in a church? And I think we can answer that in a lot of different ways. We could say he's looking for true worship. We could say he's looking for devotion to him. We could say he's looking for obedience. He's looking for faithful proclamation of the gospel. Uh, Those would all be good and biblical answers. There's another good and biblical answer that, that captures those others, and that is Jesus is looking for maturity in a church. That's what we learn about in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, I'll invite you to turn to Ephesians chapter 4. And and topping the list, at least this particular list, I wouldn't want to say it's the most important, but topping the list, at least in Ephesians, Jesus is looking for the church to be mature. By way of application, we're going to see that Jesus would want Omaha Bible Church to be a mature church, not an immature church. This isn't a big surprise. We want our children, if we have them, to be mature. We ourselves don't want to be immature. We want to mature and and grow up. 
And so we're going to see today that that is a major priority for Jesus. And we're also going to see, as we see the priority of maturity, something that might surprise you. We're going to see that in order for a church to be mature, a church must be, what would you guess? If we're going to be a mature church, we must be, and again, we could say biblical, we could say a lot of different things. But in Ephesians chapter 4, for a church to be mature, a church needs to be unified. That surprises me. That's what we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 4. But that's, I would not have put that on my list probably, at least not high on the list. But here in the practical section of Ephesians, in order for a church to be mature, a church like Omaha Bible Church, one of the major priorities, first thing on the list in the practical section of Ephesians is church needs to be unified. We, we need to be able to get along or we're not a mature church. And then the next thing on the list, which we'll look at next week, Lord willing, is a church has to be diverse. And he's not speaking in contradictory terms, but in a different sense, a church needs to be diverse. So we're going to focus this morning on wanting to be a mature church, and we need to focus on the priority of being unified. Next week, we're going to focus on the need and desire to be a mature church. We'll focus on the need to be diverse. So that's what the plan is for this morning and next week. And by the way, we're, we're aiming towards starting Luke, a study of the gospel according to Luke, uh, in September, so in the fall, when everybody's sort of back together again. And in the meantime, we'll do this study in Ephesians on the practical side of things. And then, Lord willing, we'll do a, uh, probably for a few weeks, we'll do a study on a biblical view of self. How should we view ourselves? What does God say we should think about ourselves? Everything from made in the image of God um, to fallen and sinful, to redeemed, to one day glorified, and it would be healthy for us to do that, I think, so we'll, we'll do that in the days ahead. Well, in Ephesians chapter 4, let's begin by looking at verse 1. So we'll look at verses um, 1 down to verse 6 this morning, looking at this, this call to be unified if we're going to be mature, and look at chapter 4, verse 1 with me, if you would, where it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I don't think I did a very good job of reading that. I gave it a little bit of kind of intensity, but in light of everything he said in three chapters about the gospel and the perfect work of Christ and our hope is in him and how the Father works before time begins and then he sends the Son into the world and he applies the redemptive work of the Son by the Spirit and all of this amazing, and we're saved out of our sins and it's so amazing. This practical section is a call to action. First three chapters, it's not a call to action. It's a call to, to see what he has already done for us. But now, it's as if we're on the edge of our seats and we're ready to respond with worship. And so let's read it more in that sense. I, therefore, that's in light of the gospel, in light of what he's done. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you, I beg of you, I plead with you, I exhort you to walk, to conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Live a certain way. You say you're a Christian. You've trusted in this amazing work of Jesus. Now I want you to live a certain way as the church. And he's going to call for maturity. Priority number one when it comes to maturity is unity. Do notice even on a technical side, to walk in a manner worthy in verse one. 
Axios is the Greek word where we get axiom. Uh, it has to do with weight and balance. Christ has done this great thing for you. Chapters 1 to 3. Now appropriately, in balance if you will, live a certain way. Don't live a certain way to earn your way to heaven. No, we've already learned three chapters of Christ has earned the way. But now appropriately, fittingly, Christians... Live a certain way. Live a, live a certain worshipful kind of way. And he's going to talk about maturity. What's so interesting is eventually he'll talk about husbands and wives. In light of the gospel, live a certain way with your husband, your wife if you're married. Children, parents, employees, employers. But first, first, maturity in the church. Unity. Unity. I've got to tell you that when I was, let's say, a seminary student, I had little or no room for anything about unity because I was so naive as to think that true Christians get along. (laughs) Yeah, ha, what a crock. I was born and raised in kind of a dead Protestant orthodoxy uh, not even orthodoxy, dead Protestantism. and I guess it made sense to me that people didn't get along if they didn't have the Spirit of God. I was raised thinking, I guess it makes sense, or there's all this fighting because we can't agree on the Bible, we can't agree on these things. And then I became a Christian and I thought, hey, we agree the Bible is true, we have the Spirit of God indwelling us, so now we're going to get along. Unity, shmunity. And then you live as a Christian for like five minutes and you figure out true Christians don't get along either sometimes. And now I see a great value and importance and emphasis on unity. And I know the Lord Jesus Christ sees it of great importance too because it's topping his list in Ephesians chapter 4 when it comes to practical matters. So I'm going to do my best today to walk us through this passage. We'll do it together and I'm going to do my best as a preacher to exhort like the text exhorts for us to get along, to work through things. Why? Because we are united in Christ. And we want to be a mature church that honors Christ. So now let's look at this aggressive pursuit of unity. Let's go ahead and look in verse 3. We'll get back to verse 2. But look at verse 3 where he says, Eager. It's a word talking about haste or urgency. Sometimes even it's used for crisis. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. This is an emergency. Whatever you do, make sure you're, you're eager to maintain the spirit of unity, the bond of peace that would keep us together. This is a big deal. This is not to be yawned off. Oh, yeah, I wish we were still talking about doctrine because I really liked the first three chapters. And now it's just unity. He's saying, stop thinking like that. It's urgent. It's urgent. Do notice he does say maintain the unity of the Spirit. That's because we don't create the unity of the Spirit. Chapter 2, which we won't go back to, chapter 2, verses 16 to 18, talk about unity. We're unified because of the work of Jesus. doesn't matter who you are. doesn't matter what your background is. In their case, it was Jew and Gentile, and you don't get more polar, polarly opposite, if that's the right way to say it. And if Jew and Gentile can be one in the body of Christ, anybody can be. We're united together no matter what. Chapter 2 would teach because of Christ, the one Savior who unites us. And so he says, 
Be eager, be tenacious, be passionate, be in crisis mode if necessary to pull out all stops to maintain that spirit. It is a spiritual reality, but it's not enough to say, well, it's a spiritual reality, but practically we've given up. No, practically it's what we're, we're eager about. We're eager about it. Well, I think that's really enough to capture the, the what of the passage. I mean, that, that's what he's looking for. I wish I could say, and, and we all get along so perfectly that, you know, let's close the service with a, with a prayer and a song. Now, amazingly, there is a lot of unity in the body of Christ, even at Omaha Bible Church. But we are so far from arriving in something we will continue to struggle with. But in crisis mode call from God, through His Apostle, the Apostle Paul, an Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, He says, pull out all the stops. And so I just want to echo that. Omaha Bible Church, the saints gathered here, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And now he gets into the how. That's the what. Now he gets into the how. And we're going to look at verse 2, which is strategic in instructing us on the how. Verse 2 says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience bearing with one another in love. And there you have it. And there you have it. Once again, I'd like to say, well, yeah, we understand that. We're good at that. Let's be done. Probably not a good idea, huh? Probably it would be wiser for us to say, let's work our way through each one of those. How are we going to get along with each other? How are we who come from all different kinds of backgrounds, all different kinds of personalities, how are we going to get along with each other? Let's work through each one of these. And, and just so you know, I'm praying that you will feel very, very convicted if necessary. I'll put a smile on my face. But I'm praying that the Spirit of God would convict each of us appropriately. Maybe some encouragement because we're going to see fruit in some of these areas. But in other areas, no. So that we would be a mature church. Just like anything else, sometimes maturity hurts. Sometimes the path to maturity, we all want to arrive, but the path to maturity is not what we would choose. So let's think that through as we work our way through each of these. Starting with humility, right? Look there at verse 2. With all humility. With all humility. Let's know what that means by way of contrast. What's the opposite of being humble? It's being prideful. Our culture puts a, a high price on pride. Christianity is mutually exclusive with pride. Pride is, I did it, I can, look at me, my way. And Christianity says, you can't. Christianity says, you're a sinner. Christianity says, you need grace, which proves you can't. You need the God of all grace to come here and rescue you because you can't, and that creates humility. Not only that, in a different sense, humility, if we learn from Jesus who humbled himself and became one of us, that's a different kind of humility or looking at it from a different angle because he can, all-powerful, all-knowing, the eternal Son of God, and he voluntarily becomes one of us and submits himself to corrupt human government, submits himself 
when he would never need to submit himself, voluntarily saying no to his own desires, voluntarily going to the cross, giving himself up for us, we who are unworthy of being sacrificed for. And now what do we call ourselves? Christians, little Christ, followers of Christ. So humility says no to self-desire, no to self-agenda. It's distinctly Christian. And if we're going to get along, I've got to say no to my way. You've got to say no to your way. We're going to have to be united in the gospel and united in the body of Christ. Interests of others are above our own. And by the way, when we do that biblical view of self, it's going to help with humility. Because we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. Sometime along the way. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 right now even. Because in one sense, I'm standing here telling you we're not worthy and that's humility. And uh, in one sense, some of you are hearing me going, I disagree with that. Well, it's no wonder we can't get along with each other because we're sticking our chests out saying I should get my way and deserve my way and I'm prideful. It's no wonder we can't get along with each other. You know what? Because we don't understand what the gospel is. We don't understand how the gospel works. We've got to have a biblical view of self. Look back to chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. And then he talks about being led by, by satanic beings. Talk about humbling. That's tremendously humbling. God didn't say, oh, look, Pat is an overachiever. I'll, I'll save him. What God does is he sees that we're helpless. He sees that we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And then marvelously, look at chapter 2, verse 4. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. So I'm on the fast track, 100 miles an hour to hell. Following Satan. Following the desires of my heart. And what happens? But God does something. And then he goes on to explain, this is, how, this is what grace is. And he turns us around. Pride? Pride schmied. Humility. Because apart from the but God rescuing me, and me being prideful, getting my own way, I would be lost forever. This is why, my friends, we have to keep talking about the gospel. Sometimes maybe our tendency is to say, another week about the gospel? Another week about grace? Another week about sin? Why don't we just talk about something practical like church unity? (laughs) Because apart from understanding and knowing the realities of the gospel, we'll never get along because we're too busy being prideful. We don't even understand. Please keep talking about the gospel. Please keep thinking about the gospel. Please keep remembering that apart from God doing something first, we were dead in trespasses and sins. And guess what's going to happen? We're going to get along like never before. We're going to get along like never before because we're not going to say, I don't deserve to be treated this way. You're right. You don't deserve to be treated that way. You deserve to be in hell forever. And so do I. It's amazing that anybody treats me nicely. Now, let's not use that as an excuse. If we really understand the gospel, we'll be ready to be a maturing church that gets along with each other because there'll be humility. There will be humility among us. 
John Flavel, way back in the 17th century. He was a nonconformist preacher in Britain. Put it so nicely that it deserves to be quoted. They that know God will be humble. That's, that's a good statement, but it gets better. They that know themselves cannot be proud. They that know God will be humble. They that know themselves cannot be proud. That sounds like Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Sounds like Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Let's keep moving for the sake of time. Let's move to gentleness also in verse 2. Gentleness. We're going to be unified and therefore on our road to maturity if we're gentle. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, I am gentle. And we're supposed to be followers of Jesus. And so we're going to get along and be on the road to getting along when I'm gentle and you're gentle. Instead of brash, instead of harsh, we're gentle. Sometimes it's translated meekness. And I'm not sure who came up with this first, but it's a great way to describe the biblical image and the biblical nuance. That meekness or this gentleness, this Christ-like meekness, make sure you get this, don't miss this, can be described as power under control. Power under control is a great way to understand meekness. Because too many times we think, oh yeah, Jesus, meek and mild, what kind of wimp was he? Couldn't hurt a flea. Yeah, Jesus, the all-powerful, almighty, could have wiped out all of his enemies even for looking at him sideways. Total meekness. Power under control. So when you're meek, when you're gentle, it doesn't mean you're a pushover. You're, 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 you're not saying, I, I have no power whatsoever. I'm just a wet noodle. There's Holy Spirit enablement, Holy Spirit power, and it's under control. And guess what's going to happen when you act that way and I act that way in the body of Christ? It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing, and we'll be unified and we'll be maturing. Let's just put this a little bit more close to home. Are you a gentle person? Would, would family members describe you as gentle I don't think mine would. There's glimmers of hope sometimes. Thankful for the sanctifying work of the Spirit. I've got some work to do here. Gentleness. Fruit of the Spirit. You want to know how to pray for people? It's a great one here. Yes, pray for church unity, but there's a means to church unity, and in part, it's gentleness. It's gentleness. Let's move on now to the next one. In verse 2, we have patience. Patience. It's called the queen of virtues. Patience is good because it gives room for growth. Think about it in terms of the body of Christ. If you are trusted in Christ and Christ alone as Savior, your 
justified, the Bible says. You're declared righteous, even though you're not, based upon the righteousness of Christ. And if I've trusted in Christ, I'm justified. I'm declared righteous, even though I'm not. So are we equally justified? Yeah. If you've been a Christian for two minutes, and somebody else in the room has been a Christian for 22 years, same justified. Equals. Equally justified. Amazing. How could that be? Well, that could be because there's a source of the righteousness and his name is Jesus. What's the point about patience then? Well, because there's something called spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, which is a process. Sometimes we call it sanctification. And that person who's been a Christian for two minutes and versus 22 years, there's, there, there's, there should be a difference. There's been that ongoing process of the Spirit of God working in their life and, and, and helping them to grow and develop and to mature. And the one should be patient with the other. And then it gets more complicated because then you introduce people who've been Christians for all different periods of time and some who've gotten good teaching that's helping them help them to grow and others who have not gotten so much of it and it gets really complicated. But my point here is we're called to be patient with one another if we're going to get along. And the key to that's going to be what we learned in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The gospel works equally and powerfully in everybody's life. And so we don't have the haves and the have-nots. And so when my friend is not where he needs to be spiritually, I've got to be patient. When my fellow believer who's not my friend, who's not acting so friendly, is treating me a certain way, I need to be patient. Pastorally, this is super helpful for me, but it should be helpful just as a Christian. Nobody's, everybody who is a Christian is no less of a Christian than I am. Think about that. When that person is rubbing you the wrong way, and if they're truly a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going to outrank them in heaven. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself up for that person the same way he gave himself up for them. And that really is going to help you. This is, I'm drawing upon what we would learn in chapters 1, 2, and 3. That's going to help you understand the patience thing. And then start thinking about God and how God is patient with you. He's very patient with you. Very patient with you. What tries your patience, by the way, outside of the church? Probably immaturity. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there? How much longer, Dad? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? All the way to Florida. Oh, and then all the way home. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? You're like, gentle, 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 you know. (laughs) It's immaturity. They don't understand. And the body of Christ isn't that different. There's immaturity. And I'm immature. And so are you. Because we're not fully sanctified yet, which is called glorification. But we're equally promised glorification. If we just would remember to think clearly about the gospel and how the gospel works, 
it would really, really help. And that's really what he's trying to get us to do here. Now, an elaboration on that would be another one. That would be tolerance. I'm going to call it tolerance. That word isn't used. But in verse 2, it says, bearing with one another in love. I tried to capture it in a word, and my best choice was tolerance. Bearing with one another in love. I, ca- I like the sound of that one because it sounds... It's just... I like the sound of it because it's so, it rings so true. I got to bear with it. You know, if somebody offends me and somebody offends you and they're, they're not where you are and I'm not where you are and you're not where I am and we got to bear with one another. You got to bear with them. Patience is related to that. You look around this room, which would be really awkward, so you won't, but I will. <laughs> You know, I, I just look around at people in this room and think, yeah, what a, what a group. <laughs> you know? And by the way, that's biblical for me to say that, so don't be mad at me. 1 Corinthians 1 and 2, God says, not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. Oh, I chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. <laughs> He's talking about people. He chose people like us, this motley crew, you know, he chose people like us, not, not, not the mighty, great, exalted, wonderful ones to show that he is mighty, great and wonderful. That's pretty helpful to know that that's how the gospel works. Because then when I'm biblically called to bear with one another in love, I'm going, you know what, I could see the relevance of that kind of instruction <laughs> We've got to bear with each other. We're so different. And you think I'm weird, and I think you're weird. I'm right. <laughs> I mean, just think about the complexity of where we all come from. It's true. It's very complex. Now, some of you are thinking, well, it says not many mighty, but doesn't say no one is. Yeah, you're the exception to the rule. We have a special class for you. Um, God chooses weak people most of us are weak to show that he's strong he doesn't choose the strong to show that they're strong he chooses the weak to show that he's strong and when we remember that it helps us to bear with one another in love because the honeymoon is over pretty fast Oh, how are you? Oh, yeah, we have that in common. Isn't that great? You like that? I like that too. And before you know it, it's just that kind of weird person that we didn't get along that with that well at lunchtime, you know, or whatever. Bear with one another in love. Why does my wife stay married to me? And you say, ah, Lord knows. I thought it was pretty safe sending her to Arkansas, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Sorry if you're from Arkansas. <laughs> Ultimately, honeymoon's over. Maybe pretty fast. Ultimately, it's because she bears with me in love. Love doesn't seek its own. She loves me. Not because I deserve to be loved, but because that's the sacrificial right thing to do. That's the Christian biblical thing to do. It's that kind of love. That helps me relate. 
as I think about why does my wife stay married to me? She bears with me in love. Why should we stay married together as a church? Because we're to bear with one another in love. You don't divorce the church because someone offended you. You bear with one another in love. So we keep that in mind and it helps us to understand that tolerance really plays a key role. Please don't misunderstand. He's not calling for tolerance of heresy. That's not even an issue in Ephesians. Uh, He's not calling for tolerance for gospel compromising or something like that. There's a place where you draw the line in the sand and you say that's wrong. But there's a lot of disunity over issues that are not those kinds of issues. Bear with one another in love. If I were to say to you, my wife has offended me. If you're a Christian, you'll use words like this and you'll say, you need to bear with her in love. By the way, that's what's going to come up in chapter 5. It's a pretty similar kind of instruction given to us as Christians. You bear with one another in love. Well, that's the how. The what is we are to be unified. The how is showing us, instructing us. And now let's talk about the why and wrap things up. Let's talk about the why we should be unified. And let's look at verse 4 and 5 and 6. And, and, and here's why we should be unified. Here's the groundwork, the bedrock of it all. He says, there is one body in verse 4. Oh, this, this is going to be so logical. There's one body, and the, the, the implication is, so, so be unified. And you're saying, this does not take a PhD. There's one body, so be unified. Well, if there's one, it matches one. So the image is used of, there's one body of Christ, and the church is called the body of Christ, and if there's only one of them, then why wouldn't we get along? When the physical body doesn't get along, there's medical problems. And so, if there's only one body of Christ, get along with each other. How relevant is that to the Ephesian church, a local church? How relevant is that to us? And by the way, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13 says there's one body. This makes sense, lots of sense. Let's keep moving now. There is one spirit implication, so be unified. There's only one spirit. Again, he's drawing upon our theology. He's assuming we have good theology And he's saying, implication. And by the way, sometimes we just want implication and we have bad theology. Why can't we get along with each other? Just get along, just get along, just get along. That doesn't work. It's grounded in something. There's only one spirit, good theology, and so get along. If we believe that there are many, many spirits and we couldn't get along, well, that would make sense. But here's our danger in a church like Omaha Bible Church and churches like this. We're going to say, we want good sound doctrine. When, when Benny Hinn has a book that comes out way back in the early 90s called Good Morning Holy Spirit, and there are nine members of the Godhead. We go, that's heretical. That's wrong. That's blasphemous. He said God told him that. Thomas Nelson said, change your book to make it Trinitarian. So he did. Who has more power in his life? Thomas Nelson, the publisher, or God? Anyway. I'm just wondering. Trace it back to the dollar. So he changed it. And, and we're, we're on that like 
flies at a picnic. And we should be. Because there's not nine members of the Godhead. But here's where we have a problem. Good theology can't get along with each other. I'm not sure which one is worse. The Bible talks about the importance of both of them. Ephesians chapter 4, this axios, this, this balancing. There's only one spirit. Get along with each other. Let's not become practical heretics by being divided over all kinds of issues. Let's be practically orthodox, just like our theology is orthodox. That's, that's what we should be seeing. That's where Ephesians is so amazing. We've got the orthodox theology at the beginning, and then he's saying, now that you know this, do the right thing. Do the right thing. And he's showing us the basis. Then he says, just, and this is also in verse 4, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, and the implication is be unified because there's one hope, probably using that as a synonym for the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 12 said we were without hope, and then God has called us and given us eternal life. Chapter 1, verses 18, verse 11, verse 14. He seems to be using hope as, as the hope, the hope, the, the blessed hope of, of resurrection in Christ, new life in Christ. And if there's only one hope, there's only one gospel, why in the world do you and I fight so much? Only one gospel. Let's remember that. Let's remember that. Instead of again committing practical heresy. Now let's move on. Now we come to the next one. In verse 5. One Lord. One Lord. He's already covered the Spirit. Now he's covering the Lord. Seemingly referring to Jesus. And there's, there's only one Jesus. How about that? Who here, you know, would, would say, I believe in more than one Jesus? Um, not me. Lest I be struck dead. We don't believe there's more than one Jesus. Christians don't believe that. But when I can't get along with you, I act like there's more than one Jesus. And that's wrong. That's all. What's going to unite us? That's the negative way of saying it. Let's let it, put it in the positive. What is going to bring us together? And what's going to reinforce unity? And what's going to bolster unity? We're, we're going to continue to remember the, 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 the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only one Lord. He's our Lord. He's our great, magnificent Savior who has given us this great hope, the hope of new life, the hope of resurrection. And we keep coming back to that. And yes, then we do need to say, and, and, and the implication would be, we are together. Together. He then says in verse 5 that there is one faith. There is one faith. Probably using it in the sense that Jude 3 uses it. There's, there's one faith. There's one body of Christian truth. There's, there's one uh, body of official Christian doctrine. There's one faith. But when, when two Christians at Omaha Bible Church can't get along... They're acting like there's two faiths. They're acting like they're part of some kind of cult. 
We have to remember that. I don't want to act like I'm part of some cult. But when I get along with you and you get along with me, we're acting like we're Christians. And then let's move to number, uh, let's move to the next one in verse 5. There's one baptism. There's one baptism. Maybe referring to spirit baptism. Chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians talks about how there's, there's one baptism. The Spirit of God baptizes us. Could be talking about water baptism because we're not called to get baptized over and over and over again. We're called to believe in Christ and to be baptized. He could be talking about either. I'm not exactly sure which one. But the point is the same. There's only one baptism. Get along with each other. You know, it's kind of a broken record, but let's just say it's about water baptism. On a practical level, when Christians are bickering and fighting and can't get along, it's almost as if they're acting like we should have a baptism service every week and they should keep getting rebaptized over and over and over and over and over again. That would be silly. And maybe they should be baptized in different names of different lords because they're acting like they're part of different religions. Can you imagine? Let's have a baptism service next Sunday and, and everybody's going to get baptized in the, in the name of, of, of different kinds of deities. I would never come back to this church. But here's the thing. Aren't we practically saying something like that when we can't get along with each other? I think we are. I think we are. Tragically so. And then I think the best one is at the end in verse 6, which is similar. He says, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Point being, be unified because of that. There's only one God. There's only one spiritual family. He's transcendent over all. He's sovereign over all. He's personal. This is absolutely amazing. If this is true, and this is what Christians say is true, at the most fundamental level, we say we're monotheists. So we get along with each other. And once again, I know it's being overused by me today, but I'm going to turn it on the reverse. When we can't get along, for whatever kind of reason, apart from a, her a heresy reason, when we can't get along, we are declaring ourselves polytheists. Which the Old Testament would call again and again and again what God really hates. is called idolatry. But we would never say that we're idolatrous. I come today in the name of Zeus. I come today in the name of Diana. I come today in the name of Jesus. I come today in the name of Pat. I sound more like a Mormon. Or someday I'll have my own planet with many wives. And I'll, I'll populate my celestial planet with my many celestial wives. I think a man came up with that religion, by the way. Um, and you too can be God with your many wives. On your planet. You know what? Mormons shouldn't get along with each other. But Christians should. There's one God. 
who's eternally God, transcendently God, personally God. And when we get along with each other, we testify to His oneness and His greatness. And that really motivates me today. Maybe we need to remind each other that there's only one God. And when I want to bicker, when I want to complain, I, I welcome you. I ask you to get in my little kitchen space and say, Pat, there's only one God. That would be helpful. And I'm so thankful you just invited me into your kitchen because I'm going to remind you that there's only one God too. And then what happens? Then we are free to do what we're called to do. We're called to proclaim the gospel to all nations, to all people. And there's unity in that because they would be united in Christ if they become believers. And now we can be busy doing the very thing we're called to do instead of not getting along. We can do our mission. And so let's find ourselves today refreshed by clear, monotheistic, orthodox, historic, biblical Christianity, and then find ourselves saying, now I'm going to live in light of those things I say I believe. And I'm going to love you when you're unlovely, and you're going to love me when I'm unlovely, because we're not here about that anyway. We're here to act like Christians, and Christ loved us when we were unlovely. See what I'm saying? I sure hope so. And next week, we're going to talk about diversity. But we won't be undoing all of this. We'll be talking about diversity in a different sense, in the uniqueness of the diversity in the body of Christ, which we need and want, and that's going to help us to mature also. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for our time together as we think about this important practical matter. What a tragedy it is that Christians are even known for being people who can't get along. And what a tragedy it is that church split after church split after church split takes place because Christians can't get along. Help us to know what to fight for and when to fight. But help us to know when to be united in the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We would ask that you would do wonderful things in, in the life of this local church and that we would experience a spirit of unity like we haven't experienced before. Yes, we know that divisions are necessary, as 1 Corinthians says. We know that you even use division in the church. But we also know that we don't want to find ourselves guilty of being inappropriately divisive. We trust you, we love you, and ask that you would work in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.